I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And as some of you might know, that we're actually busy with a church discipline case in Clarkstorp. And that's why we are pausing um, basically all our series and just um, pausing to consider what the Bible says about this topic. And, uh, and I think it's so good for us as a, as a young church to, to be ready to, or to hear these things right at the start, um, to know what, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does the true gospel imply? What is church membership? What is church discipline? To have these things in our minds and our hearts that when we have to obey the Lord in this, that we won't be surprised or shocked or why are we doing this, but that, we, that it will already be the conviction of your heart based on Scripture. And, and that's what my hope is today. And today we're going to look... So we did look last time also at Matthew 18, but today we're going to focus a little bit more on the principles of church discipline. We, last time we considered more the why. Why do we do church discipline? We looked a little bit about the, of those presuppositions and things like that, but today we're going to go a little bit into practical um, principles that we should take away from this text on church discipline. So let's read again Matthew. Let's read Matthew 18 from verse 15. And these are the words of the living God. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's a reading of God's word. Let's pray. O oh, Father, we, we come to you because we are so needy, so dependent. Thank you for the encouraging songs we could have sung to just say, be still, my soul, that you, O oh God, are sovereign over all. Help us to truly rest in your providence, your fatherly love, your care, and even in your discipline, Lord. Lord, your word says you discipline the one you love and the son in whom you delight. So, Lord, I pray that even as we study this, this difficult um, topic of church discipline, that we would not resist your authority, not resist the authority you've given your church. But help us to humbly submit ourselves to your loving care. But also protect us as a church from abusing our authority, Father. I pray that you will give clarity of mind, clarity of understanding. That we might know what it means to be a biblical church, Father. And that we can walk in obedience no matter what the world says or thinks. But that we will be holy as you, our God, is holy. And Lord, we pray this for your name's sake. Amen. So, beloved, the Bible is clear that God is love and that He loves us. It is the love of God that caused the sun to rise this morning. It is the love of God that sends the rain for us. It is the love of God that showers us with millions of little joys that you can imagine. Marriage, laughter, friendship, children, singing, church, Krav Maga classes, all of these are good gifts that God has given us. And above all, we see God's love supremely on the cross where he died for us, where, he, where Jesus sacrificed himself that we might be with him. 
God is good and God loves us in countless ways. Amen? Amen. But there's another way God loves us, which is, might be a surprising offense to many people. And that is that God's love is also a jealous love. It's a jealous love. Firstly, God is jealous over his own glory. You will see this phrase in the Bible, for my name's sake, for my name's sake I do this. So how will my name be profaned? So what God does, he does for his own glory, but he also, secondly, is jealous over our hearts. Not to share us with any other gods, not to share us with sin. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That picture of not, not, not any lovers we bring into the presence of God. God will not tolerate that. And there's a popular notion today that love is this. If you truly love me, you will allow me to do whatever I want and not tell me I'm wrong. That's love in our modern idea of love. You must accept me and you must agree with me. That second part is the, is the, is the, is the difficult one. But true love is jealous for, for the other person's good. We are jealous for the purity of people. Imagine if I come home one day and I say to Deborah, my wife, Hi Deborah, I found this amazing other woman. She's going to live with us from now on. But don't worry, I'll spend the majority of my time with you. But only, from, only some nights I'll spend with her. But, but don't worry, I really, 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 really love you. I actually think you two might get along very well. I think you two might like each other. We are all going to get along very great. And you know immediately what Deborah would say, right? Rian, you don't really love me. It's either me or nothing. And that's biblical. That's a biblical love. And that's how God loves us as well. God loves us so much that he doesn't just save us from our sins, but he unites us to Jesus as our bridegroom. Jesus is our husband. So again, we, we are not being shared with Christ and with sin. You must be a holy bride. We belong to Christ. He is our, our head. He is our Savior and our Lord. And he doesn't share his bride. He doesn't share his church. Jesus is jealous over his church and the purity. Husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church so that he might what? Sanctify her, having purified her with the washing of the water with the word. Jesus' love is a purifying, sanctifying love. It removes the sin from our hearts. And that's why we have church discipline. That's why we have it. Church discipline is the means God has given us to purify his bride, his wife, that she might be holy and blameless before him. Church discipline is what we do as Christians to be loyal to our first love, to Christ. In other words, the answer to the question, what should Christians do when there is sin in the church? The answer to that question is church discipline. That's what we must do when there is sin in the church. And there is no clearer passage about the process or the, the, the outline of what we must do in Math, than in Matthew 18. Like last time we did briefly touched on the, on the steps, but what I will do is I'll go through the steps again, but this time I'm going to highlight principles underneath each steps that I think will really help us to understand this topic a lot better. So we're going to look at four aspects of church discipline. 
two, two and this Sunday, and then next week we'll, we'll close with the last two. So here's the first important aspect of church discipline. We have to think about the purpose of church discipline. So whenever we think about this topic of church discipline, we must always, always keep in mind the important purpose. And here's the first purpose. When we, we did say this, but it's so good to remind, remind us. The first purpose is to restore and to reconcile. The first purpose is to restore and to reconcile. It's interesting that the text on church discipline follows a parable. And the parable shows us God's heart. Look at verses 12 to 14. It says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So perish there doesn't mean physical death, right? Eternal, eternal death. All of us will die, but this perish means to be cast away from God's presence forever and ever. And that's not the will of God that even one should perish. That if anyone goes astray. So this is God's heart. God's heart is that he doesn't want one to go astray. Now, if that's God's heart, that should be our heart as well. Surely if God has no delight in the death of the wicked, we should have no delight in the departure of the wicked. There should be no joy when somebody has left the faith, left the church, and if you have a mindset of, finally, you need to repent. Because your heart is not in line with God's heart. It should break, it should weep, it should desire someone to be restored and to be reconciled. And look at verse 15, verse 15 shows it again. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him he's full between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have what? gained your brother that's the purpose the purpose is that we might gain our brother we win them back but notice something that we don't win someone back by pretending that there was no sin involved that that's a very modern way to try to win people back okay what if we make the person part of the band you know we know there's sin but let's try to just include the person pretend like nothing is wrong so that we can win the person back or what if we give other responsibilities to the person in the church and so we, we, we try to win them back? But you see, what, what is Jesus' method of winning someone back? Go and tell him his fault. In other words, we don't win people back by, by deceit, by pretending. We, tell, we win people with the truth, but the truth in love. So we go, we say, imagine if a doctor tells you, listen, there's a cancer growing here, but if you come right now, we can remove it. That's good news. You would have wanted the doctor to tell you the bad news, but the good news is if you come back, you can solve it. And the same thing when we go, we say similarly, listen, we see that sin is ruling in your life. We see sin is taking over your heart and your mind, but there's hope. If you come to Christ, he will remove you. He will forgive you of your sins and remove the sin from your heart. He is a gracious and a powerful savior. So always keep that first purpose in mind. Whenever we do church discipline, the purpose is to, is to restore and to reconcile. And here's the second purpose. Second purpose is to purify and protect the church. Now, again, we've mentioned this, but it's so good to remind ourselves. Churches who refuse to practice church discipline is not loving at all. Not loving to the person that's sinning and also not loving to the rest of the sheep. Because this is the effect. Here's the simple principle. If, the, if sin is not dealt with within the church, corrected or disciplined, 
it signals to the rest of the sheep, to the rest of the church, that that sin really isn't that bad at all. It actually encourages the same sin, but so-and-so did it, so I think I can do it as well. In other words, if serious sin is not being dealt with, it encourages that sin with all, in, in all of us. That's why I listened to Paul, what he said in 1 Corinthians 5 or 6. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It only takes a little bit of corruption to corrupt the whole. And that's why we should be serious about this. It spreads. But listen to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is another one. 12 verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Interesting, the root of bitterness. If someone is bitter, angry, unforgiving about any, of anybody in the church, that's like, that can spread to other people. Because you would normally gossip, you normally refuse to have fellowship with someone. Unforgiveness, anger, having a grudge is the potential to defile many people. And it's interesting in Ephesians 4, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then it says, Give the devil no opportunity. It's really a great opportunity for the devil to divide us, to destroy a church through anger, bitterness, and unforgiveness. That's why we have church discipline to protect and to purify the church, Jesus' bride. Lastly, the last purpose is we practice church discipline. This is the main reason, to glorify God's name as holy. To glorify God's name as holy. I really think this should be our main desire in our hearts. When we think of someone leaving, God's name is either going to be defiled or blasphemed depending on how we deal with it. Think about this. What is the first prayer we always pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, hallowed be your name. Lord, in this case, the way we deal with it, the way we talk about the sin, the way let your name be honored. Let, don't allow your name to be defiled through us. Please, Lord, let your name be honored. Do not allow it to be destroyed or blasphemed. Beloved, I've... This next sentence, I've thought about and I prayed about it and I don't say it lightly. But may God rather close down this church than to let his name be defiled through us. May God rather stop our services, stop our singing, stop everything we do if his name will be dishonored through us. And I hope you feel the same way. So that's the first aspect. The first aspect we need to consider is the purposes. And I hope these purposes from the text will, will help you. But now let's, secondly, and, and this is the last thing we'll look at, is the principles of church discipline. Let's now look at the principles. And now again, we're just going to walk through the steps, but then just highlight some important principles. So here's the first step. Again, step one, if there is sin, go. Go alone. Look at verse 15 again. Verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So here's the first principle. The principle is simple. Christians don't run from their issues, but face them head on. They don't run from their issues. They face them head on. What a profound and yet simple verse. Imagine if we just all did this. If, you, if someone sinned against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone in private. 
You might say, but what sin should I go and confront? Because doesn't the Bible also say that sin, that love covers a multitude of sins? Shouldn't we let some sins go and other sins we should confront? So when do we know when we should go? But let me just give you one simple guideline that I think should help you when you should go and confront someone with their sin. Is if your attitude towards a person is affected negatively, so that your relationship with that person is affected negatively, you need to go and speak to that person. So if your attitude is affected negatively, so that your relationship is affected negatively, you need to go. So just some diagnostic questions. Do you feel that you cannot greet a person when you see someone? Or at least that when you greet them, that there's this feeling of pain or hurt or bitterness or anger towards that person, that it really affects your fellowship with them. Do you sense that you are starting to avoid someone on purpose because of how you feel towards that person? Or do you find yourself tempted to always talk negatively when, someone, when you talk about one person? You never find anything good. If you ever speak um, of another brother or sister in a negative light behind their backs, you already know that you need to re either repent or to go to, go to that person. But, do you, but just notice here, do you know what Jesus doesn't tell us to do? He doesn't say, when your brother sins against you, go find another church where it's not as hypocritical as that church and belong to that church where there isn't any sin. Right? That's not the solution. And can I just say this? Expect sin to happen to you in the church. If, Jesus, if there would be nobody to sin against you, why would Jesus give us these guidelines? It's expected that we would sin against each other. But what do we do with that? We don't run from it. Do you see the principle? We don't run away from those issues. We face them head on. We deal with it. We talk to our brother, our sister. We don't run away. And just to clarify, I think this also applies to Christians outside the church. So someone that's another Christian outside, you do the same principle. You go to that brother or sister in person. I just want to say another time we need to go is not only when someone sinned against us, but also when someone is caught in any sin. So when you see any sin taking root in someone's life, you need to go. You need to, when someone is not representing Jesus well, you need to go and to tell him because to restore and to reconcile. And your motive is that love and to protect the name of Jesus. So let me ask you, do you know of any Christian any church member who is not representing Jesus well. One of the first signs of that would be a lack of attendance. If you never see another member coming to church, that should be a red, at least a starting of a red flag. Why? What's happening? We should, do you know for months or even for years that someone is not representing Jesus well? Then you need to go. Husbands and wives, if I can apply this to us, just this counsel alone is so good for our marriages. When, when your husband or your wife sins against you, or you could say when your husband and your wife sins against you, what do you do with that? You go and you talk to your husband and your wife. It, it's one of the most common marriage problems. Husbands and wives sins against each other and, and the, the parents are called or the colleagues are talked to. And the person feels better at the moment and they come home and they feel like it's, it's, it's worked out, but it was never dealt with. So the issues are never being dealt with. But rather there should be communication. There should be open communication. There should be frequent communication. 
about our issues. So husbands and wives, let us just take this verse for our marriages as well. If you are a parent, if one, day if one day you're a parent and your children are married and they come to you with their marriage problems, we should say, why are you talking to me? You should be talking to your husband and your wife. We should, as, even as parents, gently push our children back to their spouse. Unless they want counsel. But we should say, but the that's, I just want to say, that's the only, time, only exception you might want to break this rule is if you need counsel for how to deal with a relationship. So the only time you shouldn't go alone is when you need advice about how to deal with a certain relationship. But I think that's all, honestly. I don't think there's other exceptions to talking about other people's sins and problems. And So, beloved, if you take anything away from the sermon, can we just do this step? I think so little of formal church discipline will happen if we just do this. Because many church discipline will begin and end with step one. So if we are just saying we're going to be faithful to not gossip behind one another's back, we're going to be faithful to bring up issues when we have sinned against each other, we're going to be faithful to deal with our issues, not run away from them, but face them. How that will protect so much heartache and so much pain for all of us. So that's the first step. Step two. Take two or three to establish the facts. Look at verse 16 again. But if he does not listen, take one or two other others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses okay so here's the principle principle someone is innocent until proven guilty someone is innocent until proven guilty jesus is actually quoting a courtroom verse in deuteronomy 19:15, where the context is in judging criminal cases and here's the principle listen to deuteronomy 19 verse 15 it says a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. In other words, this step is necessary to really confirm that the sin is really sin. Are other people aware of the same sin? If not, the two or three are needed to establish that, to make sure that this person is truly sinning. And you will find that as we do step two, you might actually understand that you might be the one that's wrong. So as you bring in the witnesses, you might realize, well, I thought you were sinning, but it was actually just me. So the step two is to protect both sides. But you might, there's an observation of 1 Corinthians 5. If you know the text in 1 Corinthians 5, it almost seems like Paul just skips all the steps because someone has his father's wife and he just says, puts him out of the church. Like, so some people say the difference is that the one is more serious and the other one is less serious. But I think that misses the point. I think 1 Corinthians 5 is, it's already public. Everybody knows, the church knows, and it is serious and it is unrepentant. And therefore, Paul already moved to the excommunication step. But in Matthew 18, the tables are a bit like the sin is secret. Nobody knows about it. The process has to go on to establish the facts, to get all the information and you could say that 1 Corinthians 5 begins where Matthew 18 ends. I hope that makes sense. So 1 Corinthians 5 begins where Matthew 18 ends. But here's the principle. Someone is innocent until proven guilty. We don't accept the testimony of one person. In other words, we always give people the benefit of the doubt. When someone shares something, it's like, listen, we don't have, I don't have the full story. I have no way to, to either agree or disagree with you. I need more, we need more evidence. Or if the person has already spoken to the person, we should say, okay, let me go with you. 
Let's go with, let, let's go talk to this person together. And that's when then step two really takes place. In other words, as Christians, we should be slow to conclude of someone's guilt, slow to believe that someone is that someone is evil or sinful. We should be quick to believe the best and slow to believe the worst. This proverb should always be in your mind. Proverbs 18 verse 17. He who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. That is unbelievably true. Like, I almost feel that that's just unequivocally true. The first person that talks about their issues are always right, right? Because we have this tendency to always maximize someone else's mistakes and sins and to minimize our sins and mistakes in any issue. As one person says, there's, there's that person's side, there's the other person's side, and then there's the truth, right? Then there's a lot of truth in that statement as well. But we as Christians should be seeking after the truth. So when someone shares with us, we should, we should say, are there more evidence? Shall we go together? Have you spoken to the person? We, we do this step. We should confirm the truth. But if we have confirmed it, then what the two or three do, does is in verse 17. Look at, at the beginning of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them. So what are the, the two or three are not only establishing the facts, but they are also now pleading with the person to repent. They're coming to the person and say, don't go down that route. Turn around, come back. Be restored to Christ. Be restored to His church. Be restored. So that's what, but if that fails, here comes step three. Step three, tell the church. And here I'll mention two principles, but let's first read verse 17. If He refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So here's the first principle. Church discipline cannot be practiced by a single person. Otherwise, it is not church discipline. Church discipline cannot be practiced by one person. Otherwise, it's no longer church discipline. We see this clearly. Notice now the entire church agrees, number one, that this is a sinful issue. The entire church sees the danger, understands the sin, and they go and they plead. And sometimes it will happen that someone is truly in sin, but the church doesn't see it as sin. But then the church needs to either grow in the understanding of of what sin truly is or what a Christian really is or our role as a church to be practicing church discipline. But, but this is so important. That's why it can never be Rian discipline. It can never be elder discipline. It can never be leadership discipline. And I think that's probably what the sects have in common. The sects always are practicing a, a, a one-person discipline and the rest of the people just has to agree, even though they don't agree really. But we're not like that. No, this is the entire church. So elders, pastors lead the process of church discipline, but we're not the ones doing the church discipline. I hope that makes sense. We lead church discipline, but the church does church discipline. So when a church agrees and they see someone unwilling to repent, hardening their hearts, that's when the whole church goes and they ask and they plead with the person to repent. But here's the second principle, and this is more an implication of the text, an implication. The second principle is it is God's intention that every Christian should belong to a local church who will exercise loving discipline over one another. This is God's intention. And I think a very simple question to ask us is this. In which church do you belong? That if you would start to harden your heart and start to live in sin, 
that this process will start and that the church will come for you. Now, as I look around, I'm preaching to the choir. Um, all of you will say this church, but that's, that's a good thing. You see, my, my point is, if you cannot answer that question, if you don't know who will come after, if you don't know which church will pursue you, you are in spiritual danger. Listen to me, your salvation, your discipleship is a community project. It is something Jesus has designed that we do together as a body. I would say, I think it is okay to do church hopping if you are considering which church you want to faithfully attend and belong to. But if you are doing church hopping as, as if you are testing out new restaurants and you know, just having a nice experience, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of church. God wants you to be a finger, to be an eye, to be an ear, to be a foot, to be a, body, a member of the body that has a function that serves, that is, that, that is under the oversight of the elders, that, that keeps one another accountable. Now, for some of you, this might be a difficult concept or even idea because you might have been part of a very unbiblical church or a very unhealthy church. So people tend to be highly skeptical of church or, you know, think that because they have been hurt by the church. But for, for you, I just want to say, don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. Just because there are bad churches doesn't mean church is bad. This is God's intention. God's idea is to have the church. And you might have to consider to forgive as God has forgiven you. To let go. But it is also possible, and I just want to mention it as a possibility, that you might have been part of a biblical church, a healthy church, and you are upset because they treated you as if you had to be a Christian. And you are offended because at that church, people expected you to live and to repent and to be a Christian. For you, we should call people and realize that Jesus calls us to repent. That's his call. He came to save sinners and to call them to repentance. He calls you to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and to follow him. He is not just our savior. I think that's probably the key heresy. That you can have Jesus as your savior, but he doesn't have to be your Lord. You can make him your Lord whenever you wish, whenever you are ready. No, Jesus is Lord, and He calls you to repent. That's His call. So He's our Savior, He's our Lord, He's our righteousness and our strength to live holy. He washes away our sins, and He commands us to stop our sins. He forgives us our sins, and He gives us the Holy Spirit to kill our sins. It's a full gospel. And that's the thing, don't preach a half gospel. A half gospel is... Just believe and you're fine. Just believe and you will, you will be saved. That's half of the gospel. It is repent and believe. It is submit yourself to the lordship of Christ. Commit yourself to following him. That is the fool. Be baptized. Repent and be baptized and you will be saved. According to Acts. So that's my question to you. If, if, if you might have been heard by a biblical church. Will you, will you just trust Jesus and follow him wherever he leads you? Not rely on your own feelings, on your own understanding, but trust him that his word is good. His commandments are for our good. So submit yourself to him once again anew to the lordship of Christ and to his church.
And here's the last step, and here we close. We close with the last step. It's the last step is excommunication, verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, now here's the principle, and we're going we're gonna to build on this principle next week because I believe verse 18, 19, and 20 all builds on this. Here's the principle. The church has been given the authority by Jesus to either affirm or reject someone's profession of faith as genuine. The church has been given the authority by Jesus to either affirm or reject someone's profession of faith as genuine. That word, that phrase, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, for, for Matthew's Jewish audience would have understood exactly what he means. Treat that person, think of that person as outside of the community of faith. Think of that person no longer as a Christian because the entire church now has excommunicated the person, which means practically to remove someone from membership and to deny or forbid someone participation in the Lord's Supper. That's what it means practically. But what it doesn't mean is that we shun the person, that we have nothing more to do with the person, that we refuse to talk to the person, or that we shame the person. No. It's interesting who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And that is not a trick question. Matthew. And what was Matthew before he followed Christ? He was a tax collector. But you see, he was an ex-tax collector. That was his former life. He repented and he followed. So, but the, the point is, there's hope. Even with the final step, we're not saying that person is beyond redemption, beyond salvation. We're saying, you are, you are now again going back to the ex-Matthew life, being the tax collector. But if you repent, if you come, you will be saved. But, that, but this is what church membership also is. So if this is what is removing someone from church membership... To, to reject someone's profession of faith. Church membership is looking at someone and say, here is someone who represents Jesus. You can now look to this person, the world and the church. This is a Christian. But if this person now lives in unrepentance and starting not to represent Jesus, we say, we can no longer say that this is a Christian. So here's maybe the key question of church discipline. Um, Jonathan Lehman in his helpful book, Church Discipline, he says, he writes, church discipline is driven by a single question. Okay, here's the single question. Of whether a church can continue to publicly affirm a person's profession of, of faith as credible. Let me just read it again. Church discipline is driven by a single question of whether a church can continue to publicly affirm a person's confession of faith as credible. So that's what we do. When, when someone is, is we, we can no longer say of somebody that that is a Christian that then excommunication should take place. But notice the key principle. This is something the church must do. This is, not, this is, this is an authoritative declaration of not Rian or the elders or the pastors, but the entire community, the church. We have that authority given to us by Jesus. And we're going to look at that next week as well, about that, that, the concept of being bound on earth and bound in heaven, what that means. But beloved, let's close our time by just considering, look at God's love for you. This is God's love. It is the, the surprising offense of God's love for us. That He loves us so much that He didn't just forgive us of our sins. 
But he gave us a way to deal with our sins, to protect one another, to protect the glory of God and his name. So will you trust Jesus and follow him? His wisdom, his commands, his counsel, and will we be as a church be obedient in this matter? And I pray we do. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, you hate all sin in all shapes, in all forms. And your word is clear, Lord, that you are slow to anger. You are gracious, abounding in steadfast love, quick to forgive. But you will by no means clear the guilty. And also, Lord, you will by no means forgive the unrepentant. For if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, you came to call sinners. You came for sinners, but you came specifically to call sinners to repentance. Father, I pray that you will help us to be clear in our own minds about this, about what a Christian is, what the church is, what church membership is. And what your holiness and your glory is. That we will practice this as a conviction of our hearts. Father, may we be more open with our lives with one another. That we may share more freely. To be able to exhort one another even more. Father, I pray that we would truly belong to a local body of, uh, of believers. Where we can submit ourselves under the loving authority of your church. To protect us and to glorify your name. So, Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that we would truly, even all of us, Lord, even though our church here is not in any specific church discipline case, Lord, may we be zealous to, to take out sin in our hearts in whatever form it is so that we don't have to feel the pain of the final step. But, Lord, thank you for a, a process and help us, Lord, to not lean on our own understanding but to trust you. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.